The following podcast is brought to you by the Bridge Bible Church in Somerset, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit our website at thebridgewired.com. weren't aware that we're having our potluck after the second service, I'm just letting you know you can go home after this one, grab something easy and quick, bring it back, share it with everybody, and have a great time of fellowship. So don't be like, oh, I went to the first service today. Like, come back. Let's be together. It'll be a great time. Um, So I'm looking forward to that, and hopefully I'll see many of you there. We can uh, have time just to have conversation and just catch up with each other and what's going on in our lives. Because as Matt was sharing, there's a lot that's happening in our lives. We each have things going on. And this morning in chapter 14 of Revelation, I know it seems like Revelation is like way out there and it's in the future and it's the end of days and all that apocalyptic stuff. But 14 gives great encouragement. 14 is, is coming right on the heels of of 12 and 13, in 12 we saw the plan of God, that the Messiah would come through Israel, through a woman, through Mary. Jesus comes to save sinners. And we saw in that chapter that the dragon was there. He was ready to devour the Messiah. He wanted to put an end to this plan of God, and he could not. Jesus was victorious, was snatched up to heaven, and so Satan comes and he rages against those on the earth and those of faith. And we see that in, in the next chapter, 13. In 13, we see Satan raging against the world. We see the, the rise of the Antichrist, and we see the false prophet. And last week, I, I had a few comments about, man, Rob, like you're making those guys sound pretty awesome. And it was like really dark stuff, and you're, you're going on about the Antichrist and the false prophet. It's like... Yeah, it's the, it's the apex, it's the zenith of evil. Like, here it is, it's like it's all culminating at this moment, and it has such a dark backdrop. And then 14 comes, and we see such a great victory. So it doesn't matter what you're going through. 14 is that encouragement that we have a God who reigns over everything, that he's victorious over the, the, the height of evil and rebellion and sin, He sets all things right. He will come in power, and he can show up in your life today in power and move and make things new for you. And so may you be encouraged as we look at 14 uh, this morning, this morning in Revelation. So if you have your Bibles, open to chapter 14, and I'm going to to read, and you can follow along. It'll also be on the screen. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, you can use the one in the chair in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible at home, take that Bible. It's a free gift uh, from us to you. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 14. Now it's a little bit long, but we are going to do our best to rush through it today and and get the whole picture. All right, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. 
and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. And then I looked and behold, a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trotted outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this passage this morning. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would illumine it, that we would gain insight and understanding, give us wisdom to apply it, and may we be encouraged, encouraged as we see the victory of the Lamb. So we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So verses one through five, we have this scene where the lamb has come to the earth. So this is much like chapter 11. At the end of chapter 11, remember that was the two witnesses, they were slain, and then a voice from heaven says, come up here, and they are resurrected, and they are taken up to heaven, and then it fast forwards at the end of that chapter to a scene in heaven, and there's worship, and it's that moment when all things are made right. They're worshiping the lamb in heaven, and it kind of fast forwards to the very end, and we get this glimpse of what heaven's doing when, when Jesus returns. Well, 14 does a similar thing. So we have uh, 12 and 13 are setting up this moment. 14 is like the culmination. So we have you know, God's plan in 11, like I had said, in, in, or in 12. And then in 13, we had the opposition. In 14, we have the victory. So this is kind of like in a cyclical uh, pattern as you're reading through Revelation. Again, we're near the end but we haven't gotten to the last of the seven bowl judgments, and so we'll see those coming up here soon. But we're just kind of rushing and catching this glimpse of when the Lamb is standing on the earth. So this is the return. Jesus is here. He's standing, it says, on Mount Zion. Well, that's Jerusalem. That's the holy city. That's the city of David. So First Chronicles chapter 11, verses 4 and 5. This is just one of many, many passages that talks about Jerusalem being Zion, or the city of David, it says, And then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Oh, First Chronicles 11. You have that one? There we go. And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, that is, 
Jebus, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land, and the inhabitants of Jebus said to David, you will not come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And so we see here in the Old Testament this David coming in and taking this city, taking this stronghold, this fortification. Zion means that, a fortification, a building up. This is the stronghold of God. This is the the building up. This is his holy city. So the lamb, it it says, I looked and behold on Mount Zion is is Jesus in the 144,000. So he has returned and he's standing there. So this scene of victory is to be an encouragement. It's the coming uh, of the end. It's the, the proper end, all things being set right. So we see here that Jesus is called the Lamb. I, I just, I'm drawing your attention to that because this is his preferred title in the book of Revelation. He's called many things, but he's called the Lamb more than anything else in the book of Revelation. It brings to mind his redemptive purpose. This is how he wants us to think of him, as the Savior, the one who gave himself, who sacrificed himself, who made things right between you and God, like who forgives sin, the Lamb, the one who makes all things right for, between man and God, is standing there with this group of redeemed 144,000 Jewish witnesses. And so here he is, the Savior, standing on the mountain with this multitude of Jewish witnesses, and we see them. They come from the 12 tribes. Uh, We talked about them in chapter 7, 12,000 from each tribe. And it's significant because not a single one of them is lost in the tribulation. God seals them. He calls them out. They receive the gospel. They receive Christ as Messiah, and he seals their forehead, the name of God, on them. And not a single one is lost in the tribulation. God preserves them through all of it. So they're standing there when the lamb returns, when he touches down and splits the mountain and he is ready to walk into the temple. This group of witnesses are there and they're they're preserved. Let that encourage you. The God who calls you can preserve you, who can hold you, who can secure secure you in your salvation. We see that he can do it, and he's done it for Israel in the Exodus. He's done it here for the 144,000. He will do it for you. You are his. He keeps us. He preserves us. He gives us eternal life. It is not lost. We should be encouraged by that. Like When we think about the songs of salvation, it's like, My God will bring this to the right end, and I will have what he has promised, eternal life. He has secured it. And so here we are encouraged to see that. So there's a voice from heaven, and it says this voice is like the voice of many waters. It's like the sound of loud thunder. He says it's also like the sound of a harpist playing on their harps. I can't imagine what that is. Like, I'm like, okay, many waters. And so we just moved to Osceola, and we're there by the falls, and, and you hear the water rushing off, and you're like, okay, maybe it's like that, and you hear that, you hear that roar, and then it's like the, the many waters, and then it's like thunder, and it's like, well, okay, I kind of have an idea, like water and thunder, and then like, you just throw the, and there's like, what is that? Like, I don't know. But here you have this harp uh, as well, this music, And there's a song being sung. There's a song being sung that you and I don't get to sing, that you and I don't get to partake in. We can can see it happening. We could hear it happening, but we don't know this song. This isn't our song. But before you get upset, you have a special song. God sings over us every night. Those of the, who are his, he has a song that he sings over you every night. His mercies for you are new every morning. And when we come and worship God, we are given a new name. It says that we are given a name that only he and we know in that day. That's an intimate God. 
He has special gifts for each and every one of us. And he has special gifts for this 144,000. They come and they worship him, and this is right. They have been preserved. They have been called out. They have done all that God has called them to do, and they see the lamb. They're standing with Jesus, and they sing a song to him. They sing a song of praise and worship. And heaven is, just, is, is standing there as they are singing receiving the worship, and God is receiving the worship, and it's just a beautiful sight. So when you're driving down the road, and just like, you just get welled up with wanting to sing to God, sing to God, sing your special song to him, give him the worship he's due. There's times where we're just like, I don't know, I'm not making any sense, but God's so good, and like, my kids do that. My Greta walks around the house, and you hear in her little sing-songy voice, I like to do da 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 da. Like she's just talking and she's singing what she's doing or what she's thinking. Like when we're driving or when we're walking or when we're in our quiet time, when we're praying, like when that comes up, when that wells up in your soul, like just sing it out to the Lord. Sing your song to the Lord. The 144 sing their song to Him and He receives worship. It says that the These 144 are not defiled with women. Now, that may be that it says that they are virgins. Now, it may be that they're literal virgins. I mean, as we're running to the end of days, I'm sure the the immorality and what is, you know, acceptable in the world, I mean, we look at it today and we think it's crazy. It's probably going to be even more heightened then as, as far as sexual immorality and the different things happening and what is considered good and normal and healthy and right, but these men uh, uh, abstain from that. So it could be that they literally abstain, that they're virgins. So you see something uh, like that in like 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verses uh, 25 to 35. This is Paul, and he's talking to the church, and he says during times of tribulation, you know, he says that they should consider being like him. He says, I have no command for the Lord, but I give you my judgment as one by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. And so Paul is saying to the church in Corinth, is maybe in this time, it's good for you not to have a family, not to have kids. Like, so maybe these men literally are thinking of the days and they're like, you know what? I, I, I can't imagine going into a marriage right now. I can't imagine having a family. But it could also be symbolic. It could also be that, that they have abstained from sexual immorality and they are sexually pure. 2 Corinthians 11.2 says this, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, Paul talking to the church, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So what is Paul saying? I gave you the gospel. I'm teaching you. You're being discipled. You're growing up in Jesus. And my goal is to present you to him like undefiled, like a, a pure virgin. So they're trying, you know, to, or not trying, these men are, abstaining from the ways of the world. And whether it's literally they say no and they are still virgins or it's symbolic that they have gone into marriages, but they are God-honoring. Their, their life is pure. They, they have a purity to them. So commonly in Scripture, we, we do see that this idea of being a virgin is a picture of purity in a general sense. So if you're asking where I lean, I probably lean more to the symbolic, uh, but it's not unreasonable to think that they ap- actually are virgins that abstain from, from any type of relationship or, or anything like that. So, but... Um, on the symbolic side, I would say, you know, we're looking at things like 2 Kings 19.21, where we see it says, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. So this idea of purity, she's putting away things that are, that are bad. Isaiah 37.22 says this. Uh, this is the word of the Lord has spoken concerning him. She, that's the Isaiah one. I just read that one. Okay. Uh, did you have Second Kings up there? They're both identical. I should have known that as I wrote it down. 
Anyway, yeah, it was a long night. Anyway, here we go. But we see this symbolically that, that she is pure, that the people remained pure, that this group of men remained pure. It also says that they follow the lamb wherever he goes. The redeemed Jewish believers, they follow the lamb. They, they've given their life to him. They've received Jesus. Do you follow the lamb wherever he takes you? What does that look like for you? What is God guiding you into? What is Christ calling you to? You know, he's, he's got good works for each and every one of us. As a church, he's got good works for us, but individually, he's got good works for you. And, and the lamb says, follow me here. Follow me there. This is what I have for you. Do you follow him wherever he goes? The word of God gives us great direction for just in general how to live our life and to follow him in all of his ways. But there are times where the lamb will take us in areas that we're like, are you sure, God? He's like, I'm good. You can trust me. Just follow me. Follow me through this. So this 144, follow the lamb wherever he goes, and he leads them through the tribulation. He leads them through the darkest of dark nights. So we see God directing the steps. We see him working. He directs their steps, he will direct your steps. Be encouraged. You can press in. You can tell him what's going on in your life, and he will give you insight and wisdom. He will direct your steps. He will help you. They keep their eyes on Jesus, really, is what they do. That's what we were talking about in that Hebrews passage during worship, and this is what we see in Matthew 14, 22 to 33. This is Peter, and it says, Jesus Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. And while he dismissed the crowds, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain to mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. We see in that passage the faith of Peter, to say, call me, uh, I'll come, I'll follow. We also see this, the same of the 144,000. They say, wherever you go, Lord, wherever you take me, whatever you do, call me, I'll come, I'll follow you. He says that to you and me. He says that to you and me. Come, follow me, come, be with me. You can trust me. In those moments, we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus because the wind and the waves they're distracting. They're there. They, they, they want to pull us away from our God. The doubts creep in. The, the, the moment becomes perilous in our mind. But Jesus is there. And the, as the 144,000 trusted him, he preserved them and he brought them all the way to the end. It was good and they worshiped. When we are walking through dark places and hard places, we keep our eyes fixed on the Savior, and He is there. He is good. He is our help, ever-present help in times of trouble. And sometimes He says, I'm taking you through the valley of the shadow of death. I'm not taking you through death. I've redeemed you from death, but you're going to walk through this valley with me. Just keep your eyes on me. Just follow me. 
it wasn't too long ago, we went to a corn maze with uh, a bunch of boys from Trail Life, and I was not the leader of that group, <laughs> but I was with the, the boys, and what did they do? We're going to take off. Like, we're going to do this in record time. I have no idea where they're going. They're just running through the corn, right? And I'm just like trying to keep up. And, and my goal wasn't that I had to keep up with the kid up front. It was to keep up with the kid just in front of me. Like, I just had to see him. Like, I just needed to make sure if he went right or left that I went right or left with him. Like, and so here I am, you know, 45-year-old guy jogging through the corn. These kids are like, I'm like, just keep my eyes on him. Just keep my eyes on him. You know, and of course, it's dark, and we're trying not to fall and all this stuff, but keep my eyes on them. Keep my eyes on them. And eventually they wore out, and I caught up to the whole group, and I was like, all right, guys, what are we doing? They're like, well, I think we made it back to where we started, you know? But the point of it is, it can feel like that. It can feel like God's ahead. Just keep your eyes on him. Just keep your eyes on him. He'll get you where you need to go, and, and you'll, be, you'll be okay. So these 144,000 they keep their eyes on Jesus. They're brought to the end. They're the first fruits. They're, it, it's this moment where they are the, the ones who are bringing multitudes to faith during the tribulation. There are many, many who come to faith. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, it talks about the multitude who will be standing before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. So, through their testimony, through the preaching of the gospel, the, that good news is what gospel means. Through that good news that Jesus will save, a multitude will come. And these are the first fruits of that. Verses 6 through 11, this, this scene shifts, and we see three angels, three proclamations. And it's very interesting. Verses 6 and 7, it says, When I saw another angel flying directly overhead, with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So in verses 6 and 7, this angel is flying over the earth, and he's preaching the gospel. He's giving the good news to everyone. He's not just preaching the gospel, but he's also saying, this is... The last chance you have, because judgment is coming as well. Here's the good news. Messiah is here. He saves. Worship him. Receive him. Follow him. But in his next breath, he says, because now is the time of judgment. Now is the time. He is about to, to reap judgment. So this angel flies over the earth, and he preaches the gospel to every tribe, nation, and tongue. In, in a sense, it's a, a literal fulfillment of Philippians 2, 9 through 11, where it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone in a moment, the angel is saying, will give him glory. Whether it's going to be a bad judgment for them, they will give him glory or it's going to be salvation, they will give him glory. Every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow. In the moment, the angel is crying out, here is the good news. Messiah has come. Worship him, for everyone will now give him glory at the judgment. So you see that this first angel flying overhead, the second angel comes, and he pronounces something. In verse 8, it says, and a second angel flying overhead, and he's saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of passion of her sexual immorality. Now, this angel announces the fall of Babylon. Now, Babylon is that worldly scheme. It's, it's what Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet have set up. It's that one world government, one world religion. It's all falling apart. It's all unraveling here. He said it is fallen. It is finished. It is being put to an end. So the angel says its time has been fulfilled. It has come to its end. Now, this, this passage here where it talks about drinking the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now, the sexual immorality 
that she led all the nations into, uh, I believe here is figurative. I think there is a, a literal part to it, but I think what he's talking about is a, figural, a figurative sexual immorality, that rebellion of spirit. That spiritual rebellion is like idolatry or it's adultery against God. It's that idea of you've partaken in sexual immorality spiritually. You've worshipped other gods. You've worshipped the beast. They have worshipped Satan. And while it's spiritual and it's probably got a lot of figurative to it, no doubt there's, there's got to be a literal to it as well. That I believe that there's probably a height of true sexual immorality happening in the world at that time. And as you hear that, it stands juxtaposed to the 144,000 who did not participate in the sexual immorality. They did not worship other gods. They did not go after those things. You see the, you see the difference between God's chosen 144, those people of God, and you see the world. So the angel says, this is coming to its end. The judgment has come. And then verses 9 through 11, we have the third angel. And this angel says, with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and the image and receives the mark on his forehead or his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. So this third angel gives a pronouncement. And he says, woe to those who have taken the mark, who have worshipped, who have come and aligned themselves with Satan and the Antichrist, they will receive the same judgment. He looks at their rebellion just as heinous and evil as what the Antichrist has done, what the false prophet has done. He says, you have taken the mark, you have worshipped, and you will receive the same judgment that they will receive. It's a dreadful thing. And he's giving this warning. And we say, well, well, Rob, like, this seems kind of after the fact, right? Like, the Antichrist comes, he sets it up, and people take it, and they're like, I didn't know, I didn't know. Actually, they do know, because this will be around when that happens. God has given the warning. He says, pay attention, pay attention. This warning goes out because the day is coming when Antichrist will come and he will set himself up in the temple. An image will be made for him and it will have life and breath and it will give a mark either on your hand or your forehead. Do not receive it. And if you do, you will have that judgment that they will have. And what happens here is it has been ignored. It has been looked over. People have gone ahead and worshipped the, the beast and taken the mark. And so the angel is declaring, you, you had this warning, and now for those who have done this, they will receive a just judgment. The consequence is that they're going to drink the full cup of his wrath. We see this idea of the cup of his wrath in Jeremiah uh, 25, 15. It says, thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you, uh, send you drink it. And also in Isaiah 51, 17, we read, uh, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have, you, who have drunk to the dregs of the bowl the cup of staggering. And he's talking about this wrath of God, the cup of his wrath. But there's only one. Now I want to point this out. There's only one who has come, who has taken the cup of the wrath of God, the full weight, this, that will be poured out. There is only one who has come and absorbed it all and taken it all, and that is Jesus Christ, because he was perfect. He is the Lamb of God, fully God, fully man, came in the flesh, became like us, went to the cross and took the full wrath, the full cup of God's wrath. He, it was poured out and he took all of it and on the third day was resurrected. We see in Matthew 26, Jesus saying this and going a little further, he fell on his faith and pr face and prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He went and took the cup of God's wrath for the sin that you have committed. He took that wrath, took the sin of the world upon himself, 
So when we come by faith to Jesus, the wrath that should be poured out on us, this cup of wrath that each person is due, he takes that. He sets them free. We don't have this. There's no condemnation. We stand free, not condemned. We stand able to be in God's presence, made new. Jesus is the one who has done this. No one else can do this because no one is like our God. So we see the blessing, 12 and 13. Here is a call to the endurance of the saints. Blessings for those who follow. Endure, follow him. He will strengthen you. And look what it says here in 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Blessed are those who endure even in death. They did not love their lives so much that they would die for the cause of Christ. So this is part of the works they have done. This is their labor that they have brought. It's, and it gives great blessing to God. It, it's an act of worship to God, and it gives them great blessing. He says there is great reward, blessing for them. The Spirit testifies, indeed, blessed is what the Spirit says. Great is our reward when we give our all to God. Great is the reward for you. You are storing up treasures in heaven. Part of that is this great reward that God gives to those who are faithful to follow the Lamb wherever He takes them and to do the good works that He has. And He says, blessed are they. Blessed. And so we see this blessing that is given by God, to his people, as they serve and as they give their lives to him, as they follow him, he has great blessing for us. 14 through 20 is this harvest, and it's broken into two sections. The first section starts in verse 14, and and it says this, And then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. Now, one like the Son of Man, uh, some had thought this is an angel because this one will take a command from an angel. But the issue that I see with this, as opposed to the ones like Michael, whose name says like God, whose appearance is like God, is that this one sitting on the cloud has a crown, a diadem, authority. He is the Lord of the harvest. He is sitting over the harvest. He is the one there. He has all authority. I believe that this is Christ. He has come to set the sickle to the earth, to to reap this harvest. And we see this in Matthew 9, where it says this. And as Jesus passed from there, two blind men followed him crying. Is that the right ones? 37, 38. Can you go towards the end? Can you flip another? Thank you. Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to who? To the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers where? Into his harvest. This is the Lord of the harvest who has come to make his harvest finished, to put the sickle to it. Here he is. He is bringing all things to their right end. So he's putting his sickle to it. Verse 15, it says, And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. He says, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. And so this angel comes and he says, The time is now. <clears throat> the time is now. And, and Christ puts his sickle to the earth. And this idea of fully ripe, actually the word means it is wasted, it is overly ripe. The Lord waits to harvest until the fullness of iniquity is finished. And here it is overflowing. From top to bottom, the world's rebellion has become complete. And the Lord's patience is done. Second Peter 3, 1 through 7 says this. This is 
Now the second letter I am writing to you, beloved, in both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the word that then existed was, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And so Peter says, God has patience, but one day his patience will end. And he's not slow as we count slowness. This is coming. And Peter's saying, it is stored up. It is, it's, we're, we're moving there. We're getting there. Well, here we see it. The Lord of the harvest comes, puts his sickle to the earth, and his patience is done. It is overripe. It is full of iniquity. And he says, this is it. And then we see the wine press of his wrath. This is like thinking about God's judgment. Just this imagery just gets me. Verse 17, another angel came out of the temple of heaven, had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has the authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather clusters from the vine of the earth, for, it is, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. It's a chilling image. So these two angels appear. One has a sickle, and the sec second has authority, it says, over fire. And so this is the gathering. I think what we're seeing here is this is the gathering of those judged and condemned. Uh, and the one with fire may be the one who fulfills what we read about in verses 10 and 11, where it says this, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And so we see this fire, this judgment, this, this moment where the one who has authority is putting fire to it. He is coming. He is throwing this that are gathered into a judgment, into the wine press that we read in this section. He calls to that first angel and says, put your sickle to the grape harvest. Again, their iniquity is overfull. Their grapes, they're like about to burst, about to split. And so the idea is that they are overly ripe. They're, they're about to be trampled in the wine press. The wine press appears to be a particular place, though. So as we're looking at this passage, it seems like this is a particular place because it says the wine press itself was trodden outside the city. So it looks like it's, it's pointing that this placement of the wine press, this place of judgment, is outside the city of Jerusalem, and it says that the blood flowed from the press as high as the horse's bridle and for 1,600 stadia. Now, that image is quite awful. <laughs> I mean, when we think about it, you're like, wow, that's, that's a lot of blood, you know? And it's, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of Tangled, where he's like, Goldie, that's a lot of blood. That's blood in that man's beard. Well, this is, this is just horrendous. Awful to think of. The perishing of many. 
This is, this is war. This is war against the Lamb. The imagery that we have, I think the reason it's written this way about the bridle and the wine press and the, and, and the way it's written here is it gives us this idea of warfare. Blood that splattered high as the bridle of the horse. And a stadium is about 607 feet, so it appears that 1,600 stadia is, a, is approximately 184 miles. There is, there is an area outside of Jerusalem, 184 miles of warfare happening. Real warfare. Real death. So I believe that this appears to be the gathering of the great army at Armageddon. Revelation 16, 16 says this. And they assembled them at the place in the Hebrew that is called Armageddon, Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and the righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself and he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress." He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's our Jesus. And this is hard. Here's this moment. The armies of all the nations have assembled. Satan has gathered them up, and they come, and they surround the holy city. We're at the place of Armageddon. They're about to rage war against the, the city of Zion, against the people of God, and Jesus shows up. He comes from heaven, and he strikes them down, and the angels are doing the harvest, and they're throwing them into the wine press. and who treads out the wine press? Jesus brings retribution, makes all things right. The perfect judge brings the perfect judgment. He's the one who wages war for us. We don't have to. The armies, uh, as, as much as I think, hey, I'm going to be on a white horse with that. I'm going to be behind him. going to like, yeah, let's go get them. They do nothing. They come behind the lamb, and they're just with him. And he does all of it. He sets it all right. It seems... Like, this is really harsh, but it's just. We read in John 13, 17 through 21 about him being Savior. This is what he said. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So the first time he came and through the gospel, it wasn't to condemn, it wasn't to do this, it was to save. And all through Revelation, the gospel's going out, the gospel's going out, the gospel's going out, and judgment's going out, and judgment's going out. And he's saying, turn, come, return to me. You will be saved. And in the very end, John 5, 30, we read this. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He judges to give honor to God the Father. It is right. And all things are made right. Chapter 14 is to encourage us. 13 looks at Satan, and it looks like he is about to win. He's about to overcome God's people. But 14 shows us the complete judgment, the complete power, the complete victory of our Jesus. Is he your Jesus? Do you have that salvation to look forward to, that encouragement to look forward to, the blessings to look forward to, or are you against him? Do you stand opposed to him? 
There's only two sides. You're either for him or you're against him. You're like, well, I haven't decided. Well, then you're against him. You've got to give your life to him. You have to turn. You have to confess your sins. You have to repent. And he is just and he will save. Don't find yourself figuratively in the wine press of his wrath. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. But if you are in the loving hands of a God, it's a beautiful thing. You can have full confidence in your circumstances today. It seems dark. But uh, there's a folk artist that I love. And worship team, you guys can start working your way in. There's a folk artist that I love. Um, He sings this song called Show the Way. And he said, in one of his songs, he says this. If someone wrote a play just to glorify what's stronger than hate, would they not arrange the stage to look as if the hero came too late? He's almost in defeat. It's looking like the evil side will win, and we're on the edge of every seat. But from the moment that the whole thing began, it was love who mixed the mortar. It was love who stacked these stones. It was love who made the stage here. Though sometimes we feel like we're alone. And in that scene, set in shadow, where the night is here to stay, though there's evil cast around us, it's love who wrote the play. So in the darkness, love will show the way. In your darkness, Christ will show the way. Will you stand with me and pray? God, we thank you. We thank you for 14. We thank you for the encouragement of Jesus. And we just want to worship you for it. We want to give our lives to you. May we, like the 144, just follow you wherever you lead us. May you be glorified in your bride, the church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. The Bridge Bible Church stands to exalt the name of Jesus. We seek to be a community that gives glory to Christ above all things and welcomes all people to join us in worshiping him. If you don't have a church home, consider visiting ours. We are ordinary people who want to live life with authentic faith. For more information on how to get connected, deepen your faith, and experience what God has for you, please visit our website at thebridgewire.com.